0: Amen. We are continuing our series, as Pastor Greg mentioned uh, just a moment ago. Hope is here. And we have covered in our first two weeks quite a bit of ground. And I pray that you've been encouraged and strengthened by this series. I pray that it's helped you to look beyond your circumstance. So often we look at what we're going through as an all in all. Like this is all that there is. It's never going to end. It's never going to get better. It's never going to change. And maybe you're in a season right now where you feel that way. I want to let you know there's a hope that is greater than what you're seeing around you today. Amen. There's a hope in Christ that is rock solid, that we stand upon. And as Pastor Greg alluded to last week, and we talked about in the first week, this hope is not a wish on a star kind of hope. It, Jiminy Cricket is not involved in this hope. It's not that kind of a hope. Like, I just hope one day it'll be like this. This hope is a confident guarantee. It's a confident Guarantee on the truth, not of my word, not of your feelings and your emotions, not how you feel today or felt yesterday, but a guarantee based on the word of God. And so we trust that word. We believe that God has given us a hope that goes beyond what we see and is set in the person of Christ. And so we've talked in the first week about hope for the weary, that sometimes we can feel wore out, we're just exhausted emotionally physically spiritually we're just wore out we talked about the hope that is there for those that are experiencing that last week pastor greg shared that there is a hope for the broken that individual whether you feel that you've just you've just done too much there's no way god could ever use you that is a lie from yourself from your flesh and from the enemy and it is not true god can use anyone that place their faith and trust in him And maybe you feel broken for other reasons. And I would encourage you, if you missed last week, go back, watch it online, check it out. You don't want to miss out on that again. You want to make sure you get that message in. And so go back in the app, North Goodland, B.C., in your app store or online. You can access all of our sermons and this series as well. And so I pray that you've grown in the last two weeks. I pray that when you come into these doors, your desire is to be changed into the image of Christ more so than when you came in. And if you come this morning just to go through the motions, if you come this morning just to hear me, if you come this morning to hear our amazing praise team, that is, that's, that's not going to leave you satisfied this morning. But if you've come to hear from Christ and to hear from his word, I promise you, he will strengthen you and he will give you what you need this morning. Uh, we are continuing in this series by talking about this morning, hope for the underdog. Hope for the underdog. Next week, we're going to finish up with hope for the doubter. Hope for the one who doubts. And so you don't want to miss next week as well. But this morning, we're talking about hope for the underdog. Now, I don't know about you, but who doesn't love an underdog, right? Like, like we all, I think we instinctively love this idea of someone not expected to win, somebody with all the odds against them, just completely counted out before it's even begun. And then somehow that person, that team, that individual ends up winning or achieving the goal they set forth to achieve. And we just get so excited. There's something about an underdog story that just connects with all of us. The word underdog is defined as a competitor thought to have little chance of winning a fight or a contest. A competitor who thought to have little chance of winning a fight or a contest. Now, again, I, I love watching those stories, hearing those kind of stories. We root for them, right? I don't know, if you're not a big sports fan, sometimes if you want to turn on a game, you find out, okay, who's, who's not supposed to win? And then I'll root for them, right? Like, that's what I want to do. I want to root for the underdog. To give us an idea of what we're talking about, and again, a competitive sense and an athletic sense as an example, I want to show you a clip. And in this clip, you're going to see kind of the underdog story kind of unfold before our very eyes. And so this is from the 1972 Olympics. Some of you may have seen this before, but maybe you haven't. And I want to show this, and then we're going to talk a little more about the hope that we have for the underdog, or maybe as an underdog.
1: And here he is right now, preparing for the race in which he is the favorite. Like the man who won the 100 meters, he is from the Ukraine. In lane two, we're going to have Dieter Fromm of East Germany, another very strong runner. In lane three, Dave Waddle with the golf cap from the United States. Next to him in lane four, Robert Uko of Kenya. All of these men could win the gold medal. Then we have Andy Carter of Great Britain. He also, a very strong runner. Franz Josef Kepra, the veteran from West Germany on home ground and Mike Boyd the surprise from Kenya and on the outside we have Kuczyk the pole two laps around. They run in lanes for the first hundred meters and then they'll break Boyd is looking strong again at the moment already on the inside we have Arzhanov. Arzhanov in the lead as they break but Boyd on the outside is going for the lead right now. Uko, the other Kenyan on the inside, and Waddle is way back exactly where he was in the semifinals.
2: We don't know right now whether he's just trying to stay out of trouble. It'll be a few more hundred yards before we know if Dave is seriously injured or really just lagging back to stay out of trouble. He's not too bad because it was quite a fast pace through that first 200 meters. And as we said, here go the Kenyans charging for the lead, coming up to the bell lap. Boyd and Uku.
1: Okay, and right with him is Andy Carter of Great Britain, Dieter Fromm of East Germany. Those are the four right now. They're on the bell lap. The split is
2: 52.3. If Dave could just pull up here and get on the outside of Orzano he would have him boxed in perfectly.
1: Let's hope Dave makes a move down this back stretch. The Kenyans running like a mirror reflection of each other in first and second. Frost there we right go. There with him.
2: There's Arzana from the Soviet Union, going up to the lead now.
1: There goes Arzana, the favorite, taking the lead. Dave Waddle is making his bid. He's not in too bad position right now. I think Dave's in great position
2: on this. at this point. He's in perfect position on the outside. Good striking distance for this last 100, 200 meters.
1: Stand by for the kick of Dave Waddle. If he's got it, he could make it. But he's got to catch Arzana and the Kenyans. And here he comes. This is the bid for a gold medal of Dave Waddle. He's got one Kenyan. I he's think he going to get make it. I think he did it! Dave Waller wants the gold medal! The man who came out of nowhere in the U.S. Olympic trials. The man who then got married, and some people said he should have gotten married. It was going to ruin him. He came up with two bad knees. He couldn't train for weeks. And he has come in and won the gold medal the first tremendously exciting moment in track for the united states in these olympic games and dave looked the calmest of all it's unofficial but i think he had it an amazing race he in that last 25 meters
2: pulled it out and took it from arzana who would have been the first non-english speaking man to win the
1: 800 meters well what can you say about this fellow he started wearing that golf cap because he had real long hair that used to come down in his eyes and then He kept it as a superstition. He never changes expression, Dave. I think
2: Dave is stunned. I don't think he realizes what he's just done.
1: It may very well be.
0: So I won't ask who saw that live because we don't want to, you know, (laughs) we're not going to call anyone out in church. But that to me, I saw that a while ago. And there's something just, if you're like me, like the minute he starts getting into the pack, and you just feel that like adrenaline start going, right? And you can almost hear the crowd start to even cheer a little more and then a little more. And then as he's catching and catching and catching, and I think it's good he wore the hat because I think it was probably that bill of the hat that put it over for him. You know what I'm saying? But did you catch at the beginning how they were talking about all the athletes? Well, this person's favored and this person's favored and this person's this. And, and for him, it was like, well, he's just kind of the odd guy that wears the hat. Like that's almost like what it was kind of said as. But to me, I love that story of that underdog coming from behind, catching the packs, advancing, and winning. When if you're watching that race, you're like, wow, that guy's got no chance. He's so far behind. And then little by little, right? Just keeps moving little by little. And I don't know about you, but I can relate to that at times in my life. There's times in my life where I felt like I was so far behind the pack everybody else was way up there and they were all advancing. They were achieving, they were doing. And I'm way back here in the back. And I just see the distance between me and where they are. And you start to think things like, you know what? There's no chance I'll ever catch them. Uh, There's no chance I'll ever get past them. There's no chance I'll ever catch up to them where they are. I might as well just quit. Uh, I might as well just stop. I might as well just call it in. I mean, obviously, they're much more gifted than I am. They're much more talented than I am. And this can apply to a lot of things in our lives, whether it's in our work, in our our families, in our relationships. It can apply to our personal goals for health and wellness. Uh, But I think most of us as followers of Christ, we've battled with this primarily spiritually, where we see Christians that are so far ahead. And I could never be where they are. I mean, look at me. Look at the distance that I would have to cover to get to where they are but the truth is although we can all feel like dave waddle felt looking at the pack ahead we are so far behind and yet if we just keep moving our feet if we just keep running and we just keep our head on our lane our eyes on our lane and isn't it amazing that whenever we play the comparison game we always lose Comparison is taking the little you know of someone else and comparing it to all that you know of you and thinking greater things of them. I mean, think about it. If you compare yourself to someone else spiritually, you're taking what little you know of them and all that you know of you, comparing those two things and going, well, I'll never be like them. And Dave may have felt that way, but the truth is if we just keep focused on our lane that God has placed us, on our destination, which is to be a faithful follower of Christ. And we just keep moving ahead and we keep moving ahead. We don't have to worry about what other people think. We don't have to worry about what the other competitors think. Because we're in this thing for his glory and his praise. We just keep moving forward. I love that story. And I want to look at a passage in scripture that I think gives encouragement to the underdog. Go to First Corinthians 1 Corinthians chapter 1. If you're using one of the Bibles provided, that's page 802. So, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, we're going to read just in a moment a couple of verses. If you're using the Bibles provided again, that's page 802. I want to look at this passage that speaks to the underdog. And by the way, if we're being honest, in the world's eyes, We're all underdogs in Christ. They all look at us as the underdog. But I hope this morning, not only will you realize your position in Christ, but I also pray that you would realize that maybe it's a good thing to be the underdog. Maybe it's a good thing. First Corinthians chapter one and verse 27. The Bible says this, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty and base things of the world and things which are despised. But God hath God chosen, excuse me, yet and things which are not to bring to naught things that are. Verse 29, that no flesh should glory in his presence. Paul is expressing here an amazing truth that we have to get our minds around. We have to understand this because verse 29 is the key that no flesh should glory in his presence. I know Pastor Greg prayed, but let's pray and ask God to affirm these things, but also open our hearts and minds to his word. Father, as we declare your word this morning is true, we ask that it would be the focal point of our time spent this morning talking through this idea looking at these examples and encouraged by the reality of our position in Christ. Lord, the world can look at us as underdogs, can see us as underdogs, and that's okay. Because, Lord, we don't do anything we do for our own glory. Our flesh, our ability, our talents, the things we accomplish with our hands, they are not for our glory but yours. So everything we do in this life should be a reflection of your praise. And so, Father, I pray that as we go through this service this morning, as we look into your word for just a little bit, I pray that we would understand that although at times we feel this as a follower of Christ, we put this on ourselves, and we feel like we're just not where we can be, should be, where others are. Also, Lord, the world around us looks at us as underdogs in a way. And so I pray that we would understand our position in Christ, but also understand that it's okay to be the underdog. Because at the end of the day, it's not about us achieving or winning anything. It's about displaying your glory in and through our lives. That they may see our good works and glorify our Father which is in heaven. And so, Father, thank you for this morning. I pray you'd open our hearts and minds to what you have for us. And help us to apply it, not just hear it this morning. To be doers of the word and not hearers only. Thank you, Father, for your grace. Holy Spirit, we thank you for working in and through our lives this morning. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know what this verse says to you. I don't know how it speaks to you, but I have to tell you this passage is what I call my ministry life verse. So many of us have life verses. Right? A verse that kind of maybe we got saved. It was a verse that spoke to us or encouraged us in some way. Maybe it's the first verse you memorized. We call those life verses, and you may have one or many. For me, this is my ministry life verse. And what that means is when I surrendered to full time ministry, first starting out as youth pastor and then moving into senior ministry, never really desiring one or the other, I just kind of said, okay, Lord, wherever you open a door, I'll step through it. So if it was going to be missionary, church planner, senior pastor, youth pastor, whatever, it didn't really matter. I just wanted to be in full-time ministry because I believe God had called me to that. And I remember when I was going through the process of praying through, thinking about serving, feeling as though God had called me, go to Bible college, and I've shared this before, but you get to Bible college, and these guys and, and these people at college, they know all of it, and they're so smart. They've grown up in church. They've heard all the Bible stories. I walked in freshman year, first day, and I'd been saved for two years. I didn't come from a Christian home. I didn't know the Bible. I didn't know any of these stories. And I remember we're sitting in Bible history one, and the professor's going through some things in the Old Testament. And he's just flying through some of this because to a lot of these kids, it's just review. They've heard it their whole life. And I remember I'd go back to my dorm room, and I'm like, wait, what was that he said? And I'm like studying, like, wait, so what did this Noah guy do? That's crazy to me. As an 18-year-old kid, I was like, what? And so for me, I remember coming across this passage early in that time. And I used to feel so discouraged. Like, God, you don't call people like me to be pastors and, and missionaries. You call people like those people. Can we just all for a moment say we've all used that line before with God? You can never use me like you use those people. Really, anybody outside of me. But what did Pastor Greg say so well last week? That when we do that, we're really actually denying the ability of God to use someone like me. And we're actually committing a form of arrogance and pride. Like, oh God, you could never. We think it's humility, but it's really not. And so I came across this passage, and when I read those words, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise, I stopped and went, amen. Praise God. Now, I'm not saying, uh, let's let's unpack this a little bit more. We talked about this in our men's Bible study this week. This is not saying that God hates knowledge (laughs) or you can't know anything to be used of God. What it's saying is in the world's eyes, in the way the world looks at the church, it's foolish. What you believe is foolish. The fact that you believe a rabbi from Israel 2,000 years ago died on a cross, was buried in a borrowed tomb. Then you believe that same person rose again. Then you believe that if you put your faith, which is just belief and trust in this person from history, who we can't see right now, if you put your faith in them, then the sins, the bad things you do somehow will be forgiven. And then you get to go to heaven when you die. Yeah. Amen. It really is that easy. That's foolishness, though, to the world around us, the cross is foolish because the world around us it doesn't make sense. There's no way some character from two thousand years ago in history. You might as well ask George Washington to save you. I mean, this is the world's mindset about what we believe. It's foolishness, and so when Paul says that God chooses the foolish things, he's not saying he's choosing those that have no intelligence. Or refuse to learn. Or make foolish choices. It's saying in the world's eyes. God chooses who the world says. Is foolish. And base. And unable to understand. And really know. And it's not by coincidence. That when we read this. And I describe it that way. We're all thinking. That's today. That, that's right now. That's our world. Not just 2000 years ago. That's our world today. That the world as a whole goes, You guys are fools. How do you believe this book? Like, I mean, it was just written by man anyway. It's just a bunch of ideas and opinions to propagate control by the church, right? Isn't that all this is about? I mean, this is the mindset of the church or of the world when they look at the church. So, you and I, and me, when I look at my calling into ministry. I totally understand what Paul is saying. Lord, spiritually speaking, I'm bankrupt. I'm, I'm not what I would consider somebody that God would choose. But for me to read that verse and go, no, no, no. He says, listen, it's about being available. You may think you're unable to be used. The world may say you're foolish and unable to be used, but God says, Oh, but if you would just come, if you would just make yourself available, the things I could do. Why? Because verse 29, that no flesh should glory in his presence. Because I, I, I want to be as transparent as I can here with this. Because I want you to understand this is something we all go through. There are times in my ministry. And I've been doing this ministry, full-time ministry since 2005. There have been times in my ministry where I've literally told Sandra, I, I cannot preach this message. I can't. I'm unable to do this. Why would anyone want to hear me? Who cares what I would say about this or that? I mean, guys, there's been moments where I've wrestled with myself over this. I'm so thankful that God's word to me is just, it's not about you. We prepare, listen, we study, we know, we grow, we understand by his grace, and then we deliver it and watch him do the work. But I I do love what Vodi Bakum said in our men's Bible study. Head knowledge, understanding things, knowing things of God's word is not wrong. We have to grow in that way and be students of God's word. But at the end of the day, it's not your wisdom or your knowledge that accomplishes the will of God. It's him working in you and working in the lives of others. And so we can be encouraged as we read this passage and know that it's not our abilities. It's his grace to use us. And also we can be encouraged because the Bible is filled with underdog stories. One after the other after the other. And so I sat down this week and even really last week and I was thinking or two weeks ago and I was thinking, okay, who are some underdogs in the Bible? And then I was thinking, okay, well, so I asked Sandra and she posts something on Facebook about this, about her underdog story that she loves and so I just wanted to ask real quick. You don't got to give a whole big explanation, but just curious. Somebody tell me your favorite underdog from the Bible. Somebody that was not expected to win, counted out at the beginning, but then somehow God used to achieve a great goal or a great victory. Okay, Saul. Okay, absolutely. Who, you mean Saul to Paul? that that's Saul? Absolutely. Yes. Esther? Yeah, there's a great underdog story. Absolutely. Who else? David, yeah, right? Absolutely. He wasn't even, Samuel comes in and goes, uh, It's none of these boys. You got anyone else? Yeah, he's out in the field. We didn't even call him in because we didn't think he'd be qualified. So, but I can go get him if you want. Like, and Samuel's like, Yeah, by the way, he's the king. So you probably should go get him. Anyone else, real quick? Daniel. Yeah, absolutely. Right? Joseph. Yeah. What? Elisha. Absolutely. Moses, yeah, I mean, talk about an underdog story. He killed someone and ran for his life, and God yet still miraculously used him because he repented and turned back to God's will. So I want to look at just three examples of underdogs in the Bible, okay? Three examples quickly this morning. And you know what it means when I say quickly, right? It means nothing. It means absolutely. When I say, oh, we're going to look at this quickly, it's like you could just stop listening after we're going to look at this, and you're at the same point. So we're not going to turn to all of these verses and passages, but I pray that you'll go back and reread them again and see how God can encourage you. So just a few examples of underdogs in the Bible. The first one I jotted down was Noah. Just the story of Noah and the ark. And we see this, if you're taking notes, you can jot it down Genesis chapter 6 through 9. So we're not going to turn there for time's sake and read the whole thing, but Genesis chapter 6 through Genesis chapter 9 kind of recounts for us the, the flood, flood account, the calling of Noah, the ark, and all these things. The reason I think Noah was an underdog is because God gave Noah and his family the task of building an ark and being the conduit of salvation from the flood to come for any that would believe and get on board. And so, by the way, the longer I live in this world, the longer I spend in this world and in this culture, I can kind of understand more and more why why maybe Noah was more encouraging the animals to get on the boat and was probably pretty happy that people didn't. Just saying. That's so harsh, I know. Like, how dare you? But you've all thought that. Like, man, he had something figured out there. He only put animals on the boat. We know that anyone could have got on. They made a choice. I'm not saying Noah was like, oh no, you annoy me. Like, you're my neighbor that I lent my ladder six months ago and then... You know, I found it in your garage sale. That would never happen to any of us. But, um, but yeah, so he doesn't do that. He does. He allows anyone to come on that wants to come on. The Bible tells us that he spent 120 years building the ark. This is, this is a long, tedious endeavor. And at the end of this 120-year project... The only people that believed and got on board was his sons, their wives, and his wife. So basically, odds are, he started with and ended with the same group of people. The same people that got on the boat at the end were the same people that were there in the beginning and said, yeah, we believe. And so to me, that's an amazingly powerful moment for Noah. I mean, talk about an underdog story. You do all of this. Your community, your neighbors, your friends— Mock you, most likely, ridicule you, point out all the errors and how foolish you are. I mean, you've invested all this time. And what did you end up with? A big boat. Congratulations. It was a waste. You know, I think sometimes, and I've shared this before, that when young people decide to go into full-time ministry, whether it's missionaries, pastors, church planners, the most disturbing thing for me as a pastor is when parents or Christian family members discourage that child from going into full-time ministry because you're going to get to the end of your life and what are you going to have? Like what kingdom have you built? It's not financially secure to go into ministry. That was one thing I'll say is true. That's probably a good point. We probably should note that one. You're not going to have this. You're not going to have that. But if you just go get a good education, go get a good paying job, keep your head down for 30, 35 years, you'll have a lot of money properties, cabins, boats, you'll have all of that. And that's really what, I mean, when you get to the end of your life, that's really what you want to look and see. But if you get to the end of your life and you really don't have any material possessions and all you've done for the last 40 years, 45 years of your adult life is really just preach the gospel and, and share Christ with people and preach the Bible, like what have you really achieved? See, this is the mindsets of our world. At the end of 120 years, what did Noah really, I mean, accomplish? During the process of building, I can only imagine how people viewed Noah. He was an underdog in the eyes of those around him. There was no way the ark would be built in their eyes. Think about it this way. How many of them do you think at year 50, 60, 70 was like, this is all the progress you've made? This is, this is never going to happen. Never going to get done. Why don't you just quit, Noah? Noah. You're never going to achieve what God's called you to do. You're just not going to happen. It's not going to happen. But he stayed faithful. He just kept his eyes on the Lord. He just continued every day to get up and do what God called him to do faithfully. We know Noah wasn't perfect. No one ever claimed he was. But I think it's amazing that as an underdog, the reason God used him is because God's grace was given to him as it is given to all of us. Noah respond favorably to that grace. And then God strengthened him. And then Noah made a choice every day to get up and just do it again. And just do it again. I mean, do you think Noah got to a point where he was like, if I see one more log, one more piece of wood, I'm just going to lose my mind. I was talking to somebody who's like they're remodeling their current home and they want to build at some point here. And I said, Man, after all the work they did on a previous home and then this home, I said, You're. You're going to be done with, you know, seeing drywall. You're not going to want to see drywall after you build your next house. And this guy said, I was done with drywall a long time ago. Like, I don't want to see any drywall, hammer, nails, nothing. I mean, could you imagine Noah every day getting up and doing it, again, doing it again, doing it again, doing it again? Ridicule, mocking. And just, nope, God's called me here. I'm going to get up, I'm going to do it again. Do you think Noah had discouraging days? Do you think Noah had doubts? And see, this is the thing. We idolize. We put him on pedestals. Well, Noah, I mean, he never, I guarantee you, there was days that Noah got up, looked at his wife and said, I'm just done. Like no one's listening. No one cares. But you know what? He just kept committed and kept faithful and kept going. And then God used him to do something that literally changed all of eternity future. It, it was a powerful moment that God used him because he just stayed faithful. Yeah, the underdog stories, they pull at our heartstrings because we see the labor, the intensity, the work put in. And here we see God bless Noah greatly. Another example I want to look at quickly this morning. I said it again. I don't know why I'm saying quickly. I'm lying to y'all. Okay. Blind Bartimaeus, turn over to Mark chapter 10. If you're using the Bibles provided, that's page 707. So Mark chapter 10. We're going to start in verse 46. And uh, that's page 707 in the Bibles provided. So Mark chapter 10. So one of the examples we see is Noah, most likely counted out by his community. I mean, we see the fruit of it. The fruit in our eyes is not what we would hope for. And so we see that he was an underdog who achieved something amazing and glorified God, again, not glorifying himself, but glorified the Lord. Mark chapter 10, uh, verses 46 through 48, we're just going to read a couple verses here, and again, this is blind Bartimaeus, another underdog we see in scripture. So it says here in verse 46, and they came to Jericho, and as he went out of Jericho with his disciples, and a great number of people, blind Bartimaeus, the son of uh, Timeus sat by the highway side, begging, and when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth that he began to cry out and say, "Jesus, thou son of David, have mercy on me and many charged him that he should hold his peace, but he cried the more a great deal, "Thou son of David, have mercy on me." So here we see what makes blind Bartimaeus an underdog? Well, first of all, he has this physical handicap. And at that, in this culture, if you have these kind of handicaps, you're not viewed as worthy or really valuable. You're kind of just cast aside. Um, so the only job he can do is begging. So he's begging and he's begging not for other luxury things. He's begging for money for food, basic necessities. And as he's begging in this process, he hears that Jesus of Nazareth is coming. And to me, this is one of the most amazing moments in the gospel accounts. But imagine the moment for Bartimaeus. Imagine what he's experiencing in this account. He is such an underdog in the eyes of the crowd that when he speaks out, what do they say? Be silent. Be quiet. Don't bother the master. Who are you to cry out to him? He doesn't have time for you. He doesn't have time for you. Just be quiet. Just sit there quietly. But we have to praise the Lord that Jesus is for the underdog. Jesus is for the underdog. Look at verses 49 through 52. Some of you, you just read those verses while I was talking. It's okay. I know you did it. It's all right. It's cool. You were just like, I'm not stopping at verse 48. I got to keep going. I got to find out what happens. Verse 49. And Jesus stood still and commanded him to be called. And they called the blind man, saying unto him, be of good comfort, rise. He calls thee. Be of good comfort. Hey, listen, he heard you. He's called you to his presence. Verse 50. And he, casting away his garments, rose and came to Jesus. And Jesus answered and said unto him, what wilt thou that I should do unto thee? This is one of those amazing moments in in the ministry of Jesus. The guy's blind, begging on the side of the road. He comes to Jesus, and what's Jesus' question? What do you want me to do for you? Now, to me, I chuckle a little bit at this. I find it humorous. What do you think the blind guy wants Jesus to do for him? Maybe heal him of his blindness, right? Like maybe that's top of the list. But Jesus pauses and asks the man, what is it you want me to do for you? And I love this because he's giving dignity to the person. Say, you called for me. Here, you're in my presence. What do you want? What can I do for you? He goes on to say this. In verse uh, fifty one. Jesus answered "Said unto him, What wilt thou that I should do unto thee? The blind man said unto him, Lord, that I may receive my sight. And Jesus said unto him, Go thy way, thy faith hath made thee whole, and immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus in the way. Now what's amazing about this is the reason he asks this man what we have him do for me, is because Jesus is calling this man to declare his faith. To say faithfully and publicly, I believe you can heal me of this. So I'm I'm expressing my faith. Now, did Jesus already know he had this faith that Jesus mentions? Of course he did. But he's asking this man, what do you want me to do for you? I you I want to hear you say it. Jesus already knew what he was going to do. Jesus was going to heal him. That's not in question. It's us expressing to him in the same way we pray today. Lord, I know... You're going to do your will. I know this is going to take place, but I'm praying that you would do this or that and this or that person's life. It's expressing our faith to him and asking of him because he says, would you just come unto me? Would you come unto me? Would you cast your cares? Would you share your burdens with me that I might strengthen and encourage you? You see here, Jesus doesn't listen to the crowd. In, faith, in fact, he ignores the crowd and calls Bartimaeus to come to him. The crowd says, hey, be quiet. He ain't got time for you. Jesus completely ignores them and says, hey, tell him to come here. I love this moment in the ministry of Christ. Jesus consistently shows his disciples and us that he hears the cries of those that others try in silence. He is compassionate to those that others look down on, even on those that you and I look down upon. Those that you cast down, that you look down upon, that you think aren't valuable or worthy of your time, Jesus still cares for them. And when we refuse to bring them to Jesus or we refuse to even have a conversation with them and introduce them to Jesus because, you know what, I just don't have time for them, Jesus' words to us is, hey, bring him to me. I want him in my presence. So whether it's others looking down on someone or we ourselves are looking down on someone, Jesus is clear. He hears the cries of the underdog and he invites them into his presence. So blind Bartimaeus, Noah, a couple examples of underdogs in scripture. One more example, and this one is not really a passage in a verse. We're going to talk about a broad scope of this aspect of the early church. The early church. You see, the early church is an underdog and from really the book of acts through revelation we read of the first churches that were planted and began to grow out into their communities also we read of the opposition that confronted them immediately immediately now in a lot of places in the roman empire which was the controlling force and the known world while the church is beginning to spread at first they kind of ignored christianity it wasn't really that big of a deal. It's just this little subsect of Jewish belief. It's kind of like Judaism, but not really. We don't really have too much thoughts about it. We're not concerned about it. But then as the book of Acts starts to progress, all of a sudden now we're like, the Romans are like, wow, this is is gaining some ground. This is starting to impact communities. This is starting to come to our attention that, that people are starting to stand against these kind of things and morality is increasing and, and things are just changing in these communities. And, and now all of a sudden the Roman leadership, the government of the Roman Empire starts to pay more attention to these Christians, these, these nobodies that seem to be rising in notoriety and, and influence to the point where in the book of Acts it starts off as not really that big of a deal. It's kind of, well, it's downplayed a little bit. I mean, the Jews hated the church, but the Roman Empire didn't really care too much. But then you get to about the middle of or the later early parts of Acts, and we find out that, that James, the son of Zebedee, is martyred for his faith. And we find out there that now all of a sudden there's this martyrdom that's starting to happen, and the Romans and the Jews are persecuting at a higher degree. And now all of a sudden this movement is starting to take hold. The Romans first thought that Christianity was no threat. They didn't give it much thought. It moved from that to persecuting believers. Excuse me. This persecution not only included physical harm. We've heard stories about Emperor Nero in the Roman Empire uh, doing things to Christians that would just be so disgusting and hard to even imagine. We've heard stories about Christians being thrown to the lions, put on sport and display for the known world to see. It also involves that uh, the Roman Empire would take the land of Christians. It was no longer their land. They would just seize their land. Uh, they would lose the rights that most Romans had. They would lose some of those privileges and freedoms. You see, the Roman Empire went from, well, it's not a big deal, to, well, who are these guys? To, well, we should try to slow this down to, okay, now it's a problem, to now all of a sudden one of our emperors confesses to be a believer in Christ. I mean, do you see how in a short amount of time that Christianity not only impacted immediate communities, but it impacted an entire empire? And I want to encourage you with this because the early church were underdogs. The early church was not viewed as so powerful and world shaping as they turned out to be. After all, their savior was crucified. How powerful can they possibly be? How much power can they really have? We crucified the one they call Savior. And yet, over time, the Spirit's moving. Now, all of a sudden, this movement begins to spread. And they begin to realize that this church, this group, is actually the world changers that they started off to be. And now here we are 2,000 years later. From that early church in the book of Acts, all the epistles and letters we read about to Revelation... That whole process of just this early church moving and impacting to now, here we are 2,000 years later. And his church is just as strong as ever. His church is advancing. His church is growing. His church is strengthening. Uh, Let me just tell you right now, we're, we're still seen as underdogs. But that's okay. Because his church is still advancing. His church will never be stopped. It doesn't matter what empire says what, what kings come, what kings fall, what presidents rise, what presidents fall. It's irrelevant. God's church, the church of Christ, will continue to advance. You see, generation after generation after generation, this church has spread now global. Now there are pockets of people literally all over the world that are followers of Christ. And we are all part of the same body in Christ. And we unite together with those believers to praise and worship. You see, it all started with 11 underdogs. Notice I say 11, not 12. It started with 11 underdogs, followers of Christ, who then became 120 in the upper room, then became 3,000. And little by little, step after step, the church began to grow. And lives were changed. Communities were shaped And the world was impacted. Now the whole world has been turned upside down by these ordinary, nobody, not really impressive underdogs. So we have to ask a question. What do these underdogs and so many more in scripture have in common? Christ, of course, yes. So we're going to talk about that in a little bit. Amen. But what are these underdogs from Noah all the way through to the church today? What do we have in common as underdogs? I want to give you two things. Two things. The first, to answer this question, what do these underdogs have in common? Is they had a shared power that was not their own. These underdogs had a shared power that was not their own. I'm going to give you the reference. I'm just going to read the verse. You can jot it down for notes if you'd like. Zechariah 4.6, Old Testament uh, prophet and book. Zechariah 4.6 says this. So he said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. Which again, if you're looking for a name for an upcoming birth of a child, Zerubbabel. You can't go wrong. So many abbreviations you can make here, little nicknames. Anyway, so he says, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. Listen to what the word says. Not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. And this verse is referencing that shared power that all of these underdogs have in common, not by might nor by power, meaning my might, my power, my abilities, my wisdom, but by my spirit, says the Lord. You see, this is the truth that all underdogs in Christ today share. We have a power that is gifted to us by the Spirit of God. It is not us that does anything, it is the power of God working through us. It is not by human might or strength, but by his spirit. This is why verses like Acts chapter 1 verse 8 are so powerful. And we need to understand what that passage is expressing. Acts 1 8 tells us, maybe most of us know this famously, that after we've received the Spirit of God, we will receive power. And that power will equip us to be the witnesses that we're called to be. You see, this is so crucial to understanding how we live our Christian lives. We all need the power of the Spirit of God to do what God has called us to do. In the world's eyes, maybe even in our own eyes, we are the weak and foolish things. We have no chance of winning. However, with the Spirit's power through Christ, we are, as the Bible says, more than conquerors. Let them count you out. Let them count you down. Think, let them think of you as foolish. That's fine. You know who you are in Christ. You remind yourself of that. And then you remind yourself of the calling that you've been given. And the spirit of God which equips you to po- with power to do what God has called you to do. And if they say, well, that's foolishness. That's fine. You see, they had a shared power that was not their own. Secondly, I almost said quickly again, but the spirit was like, don't say that. You have done lied twice. Stop it. Okay? So they had a shared power that was not their own. But secondly, they had a shared knowledge of their purpose. A shared knowledge of their purpose. Why did Noah keep going? Because he knew the purpose of what he was doing. Why did Bartimaeus cry out, even though they said, be quiet? Because there was a purpose in his crying out. He knew who Jesus was and he knew Jesus could heal him. There was a purpose in mind. I'm doing this because I know that Christ can heal me. Why did the early church endure persecutions and trials and sufferings? Because there was a purpose. What on earth was that purpose? Acts chapter 1 verse 8. Go and be my witness. And that purpose shared among the believers strengthened them to do what they were called to do. I'm going to look at one more passage. Go over to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3 three. If you're read, or using the Bibles Provided, page eight thirty one. eight thirty one in the Bibles Provided. Colossians chapter three. Just gonna read this. Man, I lied again. There's another passage I was gonna turn to. Y'all need to pray for me. Okay. Colossians chapter three and verse one. Colossians chapter 3 and verse 1. If ye then have been risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ uh, sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. For you are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. Verse 4. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall ye also appear with him in glory. What is that shared purpose? That purpose is our eyes are fixed on the things above. Our minds are fixed on the things above. We're not fixated on the things down here. No, no, no. We're fixated on this greater purpose, this calling that we have over our lives. You see, these individuals and many more like them did not live to please man or accumulate treasures on earth, but their mind was fixed on the things above. Again, as Pastor Greg said it last week, This world is not our home. This is not our final destination. There is a world awaiting us. And so our minds need to be fixed where our bodies soon will be. And we fixate our mind on the things above, not on the things below. And that purpose and knowing our purpose in this world will keep us fixed on what and who God says we are, not on what or who the world says we are. When I set my mind on the things above, knowing that and the purpose He's called me to will remind me to remind myself, to tell myself, which is so important this is who God says I am. And this is what He's called me to do. And if the world doesn't get that, I don't care. Because I'm not here for them, I'm here for Him to share the love of Christ with them. I'm not here to please them, I'm not here to make them happy. I'm here to serve them with the truth that they need and honor Christ as I do so. Now go back to 1 Corinthians. Go back to 1 Corinthians. I'm just going to read a couple more verses. Finish out this thought that Paul established and we read the first few verses there. in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, we're going to pick up as we continue this thought in chapter 2. So again, 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 1. And I, brethren, when I came to you, came not with excellency of speech or of wisdom, declaring unto you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you, save Jesus Christ and him crucified. Man, what a beautiful song that Terry played for us this morning. Just reminding us of the power of what Christ did for us, even though the world cast him down. goes on to say this, verse three, and I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. Now that fear and trembling is not, I was afraid of you. The fear is reverence to God, honoring God and what he's doing. And the trembling is before God saying, as I came to you to declare unto you the truth of, of Christ and the word of God, I was in much fear and trembling. I wasn't afraid of you as people or how you would see this. I was in fear just utter reverence of Christ and of God. And I was in trembling in the sense that I was shaking that I hope God, I'm doing this to your glory. It's that sense of, I want to do this for your praise and for your glory. Don't read that. He wasn't afraid of them. If there's anything we see in Paul's life, he didn't, he didn't, wasn't concerned with the crowd as far as how they viewed him, but he's being transparent to say that he was before Christ open and vulnerable. Verse four, and my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. There's that Zechariah 4, 6 connection that Paul is saying, I had a power that was something greater than me. Verse 5, that your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Paul is saying that he is an underdog, that he did not come in his own power or wisdom, but in the wisdom and the power of the Spirit. Why? Because the world looks at us and sees an underdog with no chance. God shows up, does what only he can do, and the world is left in awe. Because they count us out, and then God shows up, and his spirit moves, and now all of a sudden there's this great move of God, and we are left in awe. Why? Because they know it's not us. That's not us. They know that's not us. They see that it's something greater, because this person, this individual, there's no way they did that. Paul concludes that our faith does not stand on the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. You see, that is the hope we underdogs have, that we stand upon the power of God, the same power that raised Christ from the dead, who, by the way, the world thought of as an underdog as well, even as he was dying on the cross. When someone looks past you thinking you have no shots, no chance, can I encourage you with something? You smile. You smile. And you know that God is working, that it's his power on display. And so when someone looks past you, it gives you no, no credit, no chance. You just smile and say, okay, all glory to God. I'm just going to keep my eyes on him. I'm going to stay in my lane where God has called me. I'm going to keep moving forward every day. I'm going I'm to do what he's called me to do. And when I stumble and I fall, I trip up, I'm going to get back up by his grace and keep moving forward every day, just being faithful to what he's called us to do. Let's pray. And ask God to affirm these things as we respond in invitation. Father, I thank you for loving underdogs like us. I thank you, Father, for extending your grace and your mercy to so many that the world discounts and looks past and looks beyond. Father, I pray that we would know that as underdogs who you have called who you have saved by your grace, that it's not about us, it's about you. And there's a hope for, for us that goes beyond what we see, beyond what the world thinks of us. They may think we're foolish, and that's fine. Lord, our, our calling is to please you, not man. So help us, Lord, to not feel discouraged or defeated, but to know that you have a purpose and a plan for us, that there is a shared power. And a shared purpose that we all, as followers of Christ, have part in. Help us to get our minds fixed on the things above, for Your glory and Your praise. And we ask these things in Jesus' name, Amen. Would you stand to your feet this morning as we are led in a song of invitation? However, you feel the Lord leading you to respond, maybe you want to come and pray and say, "Lord, I've been discouraged. I felt a little defeated. I I, I feel weak. Help me to know Your power and Your purpose in my life. Whatever it is that God is doing." Would you respond to him? And if you don't know Christ, maybe this morning you'd cry to him and say, Lord, would you save me from my sins? I believe that you died on the cross for me and I ask you to be my savior. Whatever it is, would you respond this morning as we sing?